I'm Bill Barol. Over the last few decades, I've done every kind of writing there is to do, from journalism to humor, books, movies, and television. I'm Matt Ricardo. For the last 30 years, I've toured the world as a variety performer. We've come together across the Atlantic to talk about creativity, what it is, where it comes from, why it matters. Thomas Edison said, to invent, you need a good imagination and a pile of junk. This is Imagination and Junk, a conversation about the hard work of creativity. Episode 7, Struck by Lightning. Dear Bill, so here we are, season two. Pretty cool. Season two, the follow-up, the sequel. Imagination and junk two, junk harder. The junkening? Electric junkaloo? The first season was a complete success, and I can say that with confidence because I know the goals we set for ourselves. See, that's the trick. Open up any self-help book or go and see one of those android-looking motivational speakers with great teeth, and they'll tell you the secrets of success. And sure, you'll get a combination of things like hard work, focus, conquering your fears, and drinking special coffee with butter in it. Side note, I genuinely did try the coffee with butter in it thing for a while. I got fat. You know why? Because it's got butter in it. So, with the exception of that, these are all basic, probably useful, blindingly obvious bits of advice, but none of them work if you haven't already decided what success for you actually means. And I think that's the part that often gets forgotten about in all the excitement of to-do lists, Pomodoro timers and coffee with butter in. It feels great to finally get going with something, to get stuck in, to work hard, to move things along. But if you haven't decided what your destination is, then all that movement might be in the wrong direction. I'm the most obvious example here. When I started what I'll loosely call my career in entertainment, I didn't have a goal. I just wanted to do it to make enough of a living with the ideas that came out of my head that I could keep doing it. And as the years rolled past, I realised that was actually not a bad goal in itself. And that's pretty much how things still are for me. I never wanted to be rich or famous. If I had, I probably would have chosen a less niche thing to do. But the variety arts spoke to me, meant something to me, and they still do. So here I am, still enjoying my work and making enough of a living to keep doing it. I've seen people define success as making a certain amount of money or getting to a certain level of fame, and I've watched as other parts of their life, not their career, their real life, fell to pieces while they sacrificed whatever they needed to to achieve the thing they decided would make them happy. And I've seen them achieve these things, and I've seen them often not be happy. Maybe what I'm saying is that deciding what constitutes success shouldn't just be about your work or your career, but it should be about all aspects of your life, your happiness, your freedom, your stability. It's knowing why you started something and knowing what you want to get out of it. You, 
not the rest of the world, not other people who do something similar. You choose what success means to you. And if you do that honestly, well, that's a good start. So, like I said, season one of Imagination and Junk was a complete success because I know that our goal was to make a podcast. Were we number one on all the podcast charts? We were not. Did George Clooney call, wanting to option the rights for a movie where he would play both me and Bill? He did not. Are we household names, being paid obscene amounts of money to give inspirational talks to middle managers of mobile phone companies? We are not. And all of those things would be fun. Okay, two of those things would be fun, and the other one would be well paid and come with a free phone. But they're not the reasons we decided to do a podcast. We decided to do a podcast because it might be interesting and to see if we could. And it was. And we did. So here we are doing some more. So the only question left is this. Bill, did any of that sound even remotely convincing? I'll talk to you soon. Matt. Dear Matt. Oh, sure. We could have eased into season two. We've had a nice little hiatus and some time to reflect on the great wheel of life. We're enterprising guys. We could have done something with that. But no, we had to explode out of the starting blocks with not only an episode, but a very first segment that requires me to be introspective and self-critical. Because what we're talking about in this episode is meter setting, the goals and checkpoints we set for ourselves in creative work if we want to consider it successful. Which means, of course, the goals and checkpoints I set for myself with this podcast. Which means being honest about what we've done so far and how I feel about the reception it's gotten. So, to answer your question, does any of what you said sound convincing? Well, yes. And no. It's complicated. One of the ways I organized my ideas when I started thinking about what this podcast ought to be was to write little snippets of thoughts on yellow post-its and slap them up on a whiteboard. This is an old favorite organizational method of mine, and I've never yet found anything that works better. I don't understand why anybody would prefer a digital version of this system, and I've tried them all. I once wrote a piece for Forbes about how the recently introduced digital post-its were a uniquely terrible idea that showed a basic misunderstanding of why paper post-its are so supremely useful. You can paste them up, reorder them, shove them together into little idea chains. They're infinitely flexible and friction-free. They're great. You get what I'm saying. I'm team post-its. Anyway, my season one whiteboard included post-its of random thought nuggets like creativity and self-worth and sitting in the garden reading a book and one at the center that said simply, be self-revelatory. I had a notion at the start of this thing, still do, that real recognizable humanness is what can break through in a podcast, can bridge that gap between a podcaster and a listener, and forge a connection. In my last podcast, Home Stories from L.A., I was, with very few exceptions, telling other people's stories. With this one, I wanted to, in some sense, tell my own stories, send them clanging off yours, and see where the two resonated in harmony. Which they do, in a lot of ways. But again... If I'm honest, it's becoming apparent to me that you and I came into this project with different definitions of success. It's fair to say, I think, that you approached this podcast with the pure spirit of a maker. You wanted to make something you could be proud of. You did, and you are. So, that's sorted. 
My motives, and therefore my criteria for calling the thing a success, were a little more complicated. Like you, I wanted to make something good. I think we have. So, check. But I also, let me just say this out loud, I wanted it to be a huge popular success. Was this a realistic goal? Well, no. The odds of a bespoke little podcast consisting of two people who aren't TV stars talking about ideas exist in a range between slim and vanishingly slim. Don't misunderstand me, I'm not making a value judgment. I'm not saying that what we do is good and popular podcasts are bad. I'm saying that those odds reflect the observable reality of the podcast world. And those odds held. Were we a huge popular success in season one? We were not. You could argue that I was setting us up to fail, at least by the narrow standard I'd marked out for success. And the thing is, I did it with my eyes open. I knew how long the odds were of us becoming a giant hit. It would have taken the equivalent of a lightning strike for that to happen. Counting on an outcome that you know to be ridiculously, gigantically improbable may not be smart. But as creators, we live in hope, balancing our fondest wishes for our work against the evidence of our own experience. That balance is, I think, the key. When I say that you came into season one with the pure spirit of a maker, I don't mean that you didn't also, in some part of your maker's brain, consider the possibility of a lightning strike. And when I say my measure of success was download numbers, ad revenues, and the keynote slot at Podcast Movement, I don't mean that some part of me didn't judge our work on a purely creative scale and find it satisfying and, yes, successful. How skillfully we balance our competing and sometimes contradictory criteria for success, that may well be the key to how happy and fulfilled we are by what we do. Does that make sense? Oh, also, I think you missed a bet by not calling this Imagination and Junk Season 2 the rejunkening. I mean, that one's just a gimme. Take care. It's good to be back. And I'll talk to you soon. Bill. Dear Bill, you know what? I've done the research. I've tabulated the figures. I've rechecked the spreadsheets. And I think there might just already be enough podcasts that are just two white dudes talking about not very much amiably. I'm officially setting our sights on talking about real things awkwardly. It's tempting to try and keep afloat the idea that we're so different, that I, as you said, approach this with the pure spirit of a maker. I mean, I try to do that as much as I can with everything I do, but it is, you know, completely impossible. I think the reason I try to focus on what I'm doing rather than how it's being received is that, well, that's the part that I'm in control of, so that's where the majority of my energy should go. But don't think for a second that this comes naturally or that when nobody's looking and I'm behind closed doors, I don't pine for populist success just as much as you do. Maybe it's just that I've been here, or at least to similar places, so many times before. Every time I do a run at the Edinburgh Fringe, I do all I can to sell tickets and then convince myself I haven't done enough. Whenever I put my own shows on in London, I work my ass off to get the word out and then still assume that nobody will come because really, why would they? And still now, during Covid, because yes, that's very much still a thing, when I post a new video on YouTube, I refresh the web page so often Google gets a migraine, just hoping to see one more person has watched it. This is all just the modern show business version of the basic human need for validation, of course. 
Just like pizza, it's as unhealthy as it is inevitable. Like I say though, the various flavours of this thing that I've experienced myself over the years have pushed me to work hard to control it, to not let it control me. Because the other end of this is that mainstream success becomes the main motivator in what we make. If that's all we care about, then what's to stop us out Joe Roganing Joe Rogan? We could develop a nice little side hustle selling QAnon-branded paleo CBD steroids too. We'd be idiots, sure, but we'd have a good shot at getting a bigger audience of idiots. Sometimes when my wife and me are out on a long walk, exploring somewhere way off the beaten track in the middle of nowhere, we might stumble across a big old house. Look at that lovely house, she'll say. Yes, I'll reply, except you'd have to live here. I think it's kind of like that. Not to say that all the hugely successful podcasts are awful. In fact, hang on, I'm going to go and Google and see what the most successful podcasts actually are. Okay, I'm back. It looks like we're going to need to work for the New York Times or NPR while at the same time investigating a murder while already being famous for our late night chat show. I'm not sure how much of that is achievable before we do the next episode. It is of course true that there are as many great podcasts that are giant hits as there are bad ones, and as many bad podcasts that have sunk without trace as works of genius that have gone unheard. That's how things are in every art form. Show business, which is what this is, has never been a meritocracy. It's always been a chaotic, churning, stormy sea that throws some things up and drags others down, seemingly mostly at the whim of an unknowable god. And the algorithm. And money. Best you can ever do is try and hang on and see what happens. Your post-it note said, be self-revelatory. Okay then, sure. I'd like this podcast to be a huge hit. I'd like people to think we're saying things that aren't too stupid and we're maybe even a little bit funny. If I didn't want appreciation from strangers, I wouldn't have gone on the stage. I want people to share it with each other and to get something from it, and I want a lot of people to do that. And when I'm doing shows, I'd like them all to be sold out. Having a huge audience isn't the reason I've ever done anything, but damn, it's nice when it happens, and I'd like it to happen for us. But why? Why do we want to be a giant hit? Do we need lots of strangers to tell us it's good by subscribing? Do our egos need to see our names high in a chart so that we feel we're worth something? I know that even though I work hard for it to not be the main motivator, just like you, deep down, I want this to be a hit. But why? Exactly why? I'm going to go check the download numbers. I'll talk to you soon. Matt. Dear Matt, Well, if the goal is to talk about real things awkwardly, then I tell you what, we should retire this thing right now, my friend, because we have nailed it. I mean, you can hang that mission accomplished banner. Oh, by the way, you remember in my last segment when I talked about how this show becoming a massive popular success in season one would have been analogous to a lightning strike? By which, of course, I meant a unicorn, something that's fantastically unlikely.
but as accidents go, a happy one. I'm now reconsidering that trope because just last night, this is true, just last night during a freak electrical storm in the seaside town where I live, a bolt of actual non-metaphorical lightning came screaming down from the sky with a terrifying crash and sought out the transformer on top of the power pole in the alley behind my house. Or the muse, as I believe you say over there. The transformer exploded with a nuclear flash and a crack so loud and terrifying that it actually made my 11-year-old Labrador, Scout, temporarily raise an eyebrow. And it knocked out all of our power for about 12 hours. This morning found me on my hands and knees in the living room like one of the schoolboys in Lord of the Flies, rubbing two sticks together in an attempt to conjure up some internet. The point is, I now know that a lightning strike is a thing that can happen, and when it does happen, is not great. So please correct your records. Anyway, it may have been a little neat to say that you came at season one with the pure spirit of a maker. You and I, let's remind listeners, have never actually met face to face. And what people hear when they hear this show is the sound of two guys getting to know each other across a vast distance in something like real time, with creativity as our common language. It did seem to me that you engaged in our process over season one with a little calmer, more centered approach than I did. I'll take you at your word when you say that, in fact, you have the same crass desires and hopes for this project that I do, just maybe mixed in different proportions to mine. So let's stipulate that, in reality, you are not some glowing vessel of heavenly purity like Jeff Bridges in Starman, just like I am not a febrile prisoner of my basest desires, like, say, Peter Lorre in M., that guy with a podcast. We don't, either of us, live at the far poles of that continuum. Most people don't. What I mean when I talk about balance is that most of us have in us some mix of the craven and the pure, and the trick is finding the spot where the scales even out, because that's a place where you can live. It's interesting to me, by the way, that of the two of us, it's the one who's spent three decades in show business who's comparatively well-adjusted. Look, no offense. I'm just saying, having spent a little under one decade in show business, balance is not the first thing I associate with it. Excess, duplicity, and treachery would be the first things. It sounds like it's been a mental health strategy for you to find balance in your approach to your career. Maybe the longer you're in it, the more critical that balance becomes, and the ones who can't find it are the ones who get destroyed. So that's fun. Anyway, that's what we do. That's what most people do. We find a degree of longing for approval that's somewhere shy of swamping us. And some of us cut that margin more thinly than others. But none of that gets to the question you ask. Why do each of us want, in our ways and to different degrees, why do we want the approval of strangers? This is a difficult question. It's difficult for me, anyway. I've struggled to answer it. The fact that, yes, I do want this thing to be a huge popular smash... It feels a little shallow when I say it right out loud. I mean, shouldn't the conviction that we've done good work be enough? It should. But it's hard, right? We're human and we doubt ourselves, which makes that conviction difficult to find. So we look for it in others. Setting realistic expectations for the reception our work will get is a way of not getting blindsided if, by whatever metric, that reception falls short. It's a good tool to have in your creative toolkit. So why didn't I have it for this? It's a fair question. The best answer I can offer is, I don't have it for anything. Everything I've ever put out since I became a solo operator, my hope has been that it would be affirmed as good by as many people as possible. I'll go further 
It's not only been my hope, it has, to some degree, been my expectation. I wrote a movie. It was bought by Disney, placed in turnaround, and never produced. Was I disappointed? Of course. Was I surprised? I was. I wrote a book, a crime caper called Thanks for Killing Me, and it was passed on by every publisher in New York and some in other places, too. Disappointing. And, to me, surprising. My first podcast, while generously received, never cracked the sort of download numbers I'd hoped for. And this is the thing, the sort of numbers I thought, in my heart, it would get. I've been in creative businesses for a long time. I've heard no many more times than I've heard yes. But I continue to believe, I continue to expect, that the work I do will have broad, wide success. How do you account for that? Does it mean I have a healthy belief in myself or just an outsized ego? I could tell you this isn't for me to say, but the truth is, because, again, we're truth-telling here, right? It's 30% self-belief and 70% ego. And why bother to set expectations if your ego is telling you you have seven chances in ten to be a smash? I'd take those odds. Creativity is messy. At least, it is if you're doing it right. Everything a maker makes is unique, which means it bears within it a unique ability to lift the maker's spirits, like a good strong espresso. Or to bring them low, like a... Well, I guess like a weak, crappy espresso from a machine in a mid-priced chain hotel that's putting on airs. Or is jumped up, as I believe you say over there. My brain just seems to want to reach for that good, strong, spirit-lifting cup. I know it isn't good for me. I know it's going to keep me awake. But I reach for it every time. Which reminds me, it's been 11 minutes since I've had some caffeine. So, time for a refill. I'll talk to you soon. Bill. Dear Bill. Oh yeah. You want a personal subject talked about awkwardly? Come to an Englishman. It's one of our best things. How do you think Benny Hill got as far as he did? On his first audition, the powers that be tried to find the right words to tell him how absolutely awful he was, and by the time they'd agreed on what to say, he'd been on the air for 30 years. So, yes, I'm not a pure, glowing, Jeff Bridges, Starman type artist. If I'm going to be a Jeff Bridges, then I'll be the Jeff Bridges in Tron, please and thank you. I already have one of his quotes from that movie tattooed on me. Fact. Only in the last few years have I learned to be a little more in control of those needs to be successful by the rest of the world's measurements. I suppose my starting point was that if huge mainstream success was ever my goal, then I wouldn't have decided to be a juggler. But still, once you start being in front of clapping people, it's virtually impossible for some part of you not to want, well, more clapping people. Having said that, I think I'm lucky that I've done well, but in a fairly niche art form. So I'm slap bang in the middle of show business. Not at the bottom looking up with a heart full of dreams like the lead in the first act of a musical, but also not at the top, looking down, convinced that the only thing that got me there was a unique, unstoppable, raw, burning talent. I'm in the middle. I make a living, and I still get to be mostly in charge of it. That's where most people in my industry live, but you wouldn't know it. The public perception is that we're all wannabes or stars. 
I'm honestly, genuinely happy being neither. So I guess that mindset, cultivated over years of career self-examination, helps curb the need to have endless blanket approval from strangers that unsupportive parents planted in me. Oh yeah, if we're being honest, then we're going to be needing a cliché or two. Like someone once said, they're clichés because they're true. You say that you're surprised that after decades in show business, I seem well-balanced. I do work hard at that because, you know, I've been unbalanced and that wasn't fun. But also, I think there's an element of being battle-hardened in there too. It's kind of like telling a veteran boxer that they know how to take a punch. Yeah, that comes from being punched a lot. And the ones that couldn't take those punches, they don't stick around. Showbiz is, as you correctly surmise, a world of duplicity and treachery, so you either learn to be those things, or you learn to have those things not hurt you, to roll with those punches. I don't think it's shallow to want to be a smash hit. It just sometimes feels, perhaps to people like us, a little embarrassing to admit. It's certainly easier to shrug like a sullen teenager and mumble, I don't care, But it's not true. We do care. I do care. When things happen that signify success, which for us on this podcast, I guess, would be good numbers of subscribers, downloads, comments, lots of five stars, lots of shares, messages, that kind of thing. It doesn't feel good because it strokes the ego. Okay, it mostly doesn't feel good because it strokes the ego. And it doesn't feel good because it makes us feel clever. I think the centre of it is that all of these things, those clicks of various different kinds of approval, are people encouraging us. Every time someone leaves some stars or subscribes or recommends us to a friend, it's a stranger finding a way to tell us that we're going in the right direction. A way for a small part of the world to tell us, yes, good, keep going. And that's all I've ever needed, really. Proof that my compass isn't broken that whatever idea I've had wasn't as stupid as some of the voices in my head tell me it is. It's a stranger telling me to ignore my fragility and just make more stuff. So, let's keep going. I'll talk to you soon. Matt. Dear Matt, I don't know if I'm supposed to believe the Benny Hill story is literally true. I assume not. And even if it were, it would still fall under the rubric of what reporters call too good to check. But it does remind me of an experience I had as a freelancer in the 80s, when I wrote an opinion piece for a now-defunct magazine called Washington Journalism Review. Now defunct, by the way, being the most frequently used modifier in the world to precede the noun magazine. The piece was about Andy Rooney, who at the time was doing the show-ending essay segment for the venerable TV news program 60 Minutes. A lot of people aren't drinking the water that comes out of their faucet these days. Bottled water has become a $9 billion business. This is one of the most popular, Poland spring water. It isn't Polish. Rooney would ramble on in a discursive fashion about anything that had happened to strike his eye that week, like a kid who'd only just remembered on the school bus that morning that he had a composition due. He'd do it in this wheezy old man voice, and it usually began, Did you ever notice that? It was the kind of cushy no-work gig that was bestowed on veteran correspondents at the end of their careers, and Rooney was indeed one of those guys. He'd written for the military newspaper Stars and Stripes during World War II, 
and been awarded a Bronze Star for his service as a war correspondent. I don't remember thinking he should be afforded a certain amount of respect for this, being young and stupid as I was, and so I wrote my piece in a parody of Rooney's style. You ever notice, I wrote, that Andy Rooney's stuff is all the same and all his insights are shallow and pointless? Which was true as far as it went, but, you know. A couple of weeks after it came out, I got a note from Rooney on exquisite cream-colored CBS News stationery. The news business being so flush in those days that they could still afford things like exquisite cream-colored stationery. In it, Rooney archly thanked me for my piece and concluded by saying, By the time I discovered I couldn't write, I was too famous to quit. The crankiness was very on-brand for him. I felt properly chastened for having considered him an old geezer who was coasting lazily, and I did so right up to the moment I discovered that he had, without attribution, stolen the quote from Robert Benchley. But anyway, I think your analogy to characters in a musical might need a little fine-tuning. The archetype for the first act is, as you say, the young striver with stars in her eyes, looking up from the bottom. But the right bookend of that, I think, isn't a character who, in the third act, looks down in triumph from the heights. It's a character who looks in her rearview and sees the onrushing headlights of the younger talent who's coming up fast to take her place. That's the show business I know. Maybe that precariousness, I noticed that you didn't describe yourself as being in charge of your own career, but rather mostly in charge of it. Maybe that vulnerability to the fickleness of taste or fashion is the cost of your autonomy. Autonomy is good, and if you are autonomous, goal setting is too. It's healthy. It gives you a stick to hold the forces of creative disappointment at bay. And in a world where more and more of us are independent operators, we talked about this a little last season, or where the structures around us have been stripped down to be more lightweight and nimble, it's an ever more valuable skill. The degree to which I don't possess it may simply be a measure of how old media I really am, because the businesses I came up in bore the downside risks. That's part of what you need a big, bulky structure for. Which meant that the totaling up of the score at the end of the day was theirs to do, not mine. This was, in some respects, a liberating position to be in. I didn't have to worry if a cover story I might have written for Newsweek led to a drop-off in newsstand sales that week, because that kind of thing was above my pay grade. Or, as an ex-boss of my wife's once put it, not my circus, not my monkeys. Did that lack of individual responsibility for the measurable success or failure of what I was working on set me up for life as a freelancer? It did not. Would I be better off in that life if I had a more finely calibrated ability to predict how my work will be received and set my expectations accordingly? I would, but we are who we are. So let's look ahead to a new season of this podcast with hope, that would be my job, and realism, that would be yours. And if we can at least agree that we like what we're doing and that it's worth putting out there, well, we may still disagree about whether that's enough. But it's a start. I'll see you next time. Imagination and Junk is written by Bill Barol in the U.S. and Matt Ricardo in the U.K. with audio production by Bill Barol. For more information, show notes, and bonus content, it's imaginationandjunk.com.